The scripture, the scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kim. Let me open us in prayer. Lord, on this first day of the year, what do we need more than a call to worship you, a reminder of your greatness and majesty? What do we need besides a moment of silence to come honestly before you with our sin and be met with an abundant grace? We need to hear your word. We need to sing praises to you. Thank you for these. They anchor us, and I pray that it would be to glorify your name. Be with us this morning, Lord. We thank you that you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's not standard practice at Ascension to have a cup of tea at the top of the pulpit, but I kind of have a thing in my throat, so you're going to have to let uh, let me go with that. I've noticed uh, something of a trend in the past couple years from movies coming out of Hollywood where uh, a, a movie comes out that depicts an extreme excess and, and, and uh, puts that against an isolating emptiness. One such film of the past year that was like that is a movie called Elvis, uh, the uh, story of Elvis Presley. Um, the ever-popular singer, and the movie is shot with rich color and wardrobe and filmed in lavish locations. There's a lot of gold in this movie. And then there's one scene where Elvis is sitting on a couch in his house, and the camera kind of takes on a bluish tint. And what you're seeing is Elvis sitting on a couch surrounded by throw pillows and bobbleheads, all in his image and likeness. And he has a dazed look in his eyes. He looks lost. He looks empty. And how can it be that this great singer, surrounded by so much excess, is experiencing such an inward emptiness? Well, we don't need to experience Elvis' life to experience what the movie is showing us and have a reaction to it, don't we? It's, the movie is showing us that, that desires, our desires can never really be met. They can only be endlessly fed. And Elvis has fed his desires. He's had excesses in every category we would want. Fame and success and money and influence. But it doesn't appear as though he is more full. In fact, it appears that his life is even emptier than when he was a young boy singing in a revival tent. And this is part of the story, asking, what is this for? What are these desires for if they can never be met but only endlessly fed? 
You see, hunger is a problem, a universal problem of the human experience. Hunger is ever-present, and the satisfaction of that hunger is ever-elusive. We know that one billion of this world's population goes to bed hungry. That's a problem. And yet, that's only one source of hunger, of desire, if you will, that remains unsatisfied. For there are countless other points of pain and emptiness, aches and longings that remain unfulfilled, sunset after sunset. You probably already see the connection I'm drawing this morning between our experience of hunger and the hunger that Jesus experiences when he's led into the wilderness. We're looking at the first temptation of Christ, and I think I can say that these temptations were formational for Jesus in his ministry. I don't think it's insignificant that two lines of the Lord's Prayer can at least be somewhat connected to this moment. Give us our daily bread and deliver us from temptation. Yes, it applies to other areas, but it certainly applies here. These temptations that Jesus faces are not temptations in the literal sense that you and I would face. If we were tempted to turn stones to bread, we, could, we couldn't be tempted because we couldn't do it. And yet, it's noteworthy that we have these temptations. After all, no one was there with Jesus. He must have relayed them to his disciples at a certain point. There must be something worth reflecting on here. There must be some instruction for us here. I wonder what that moment was like, even when Jesus told his disciples about what happened here. We'll look at three angles on this passage this morning. Desire, direction, and dependence. First, we'll look at Christ's hunger, his desire for food that was ravenous and the touch point of this temptation. We know hunger well. Second, we'll look at direction. One of Satan's challenges to Christ was to challenge his sonship to God the Father. His jab seems to be, is this the state of the Son of God? Challenging the direction, the the path, the trajectory of Christ's life and ministry. And don't we too know what it's like to be in the wilderness and wonder about the direction of our lives? That's another type of hunger. And thirdly, we'll look at dependence. This is where Christ positions himself as dependent on the Father. And truly, this is not only to satisfy our hungers, not the, and truly, this is the only way to satisfy our hungers, to recognize what is always true, that our lives proceed from God, not just bread itself. To paraphrase Christ, if bread is all there is, we're going to be hungry for a long time. So let's start with desire. We see in verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The broader context around these verses can be summarized this way. From water to wilderness. Christ has just been baptized in the verses prior to the ones that Kim just read for us. He was standing in a river, being baptized, seeing heaven open, feeling the Spirit descend on him like a dove, and hearing the audible voice of his Father, this is my beloved Son. What a moment. What now? What's next for this beloved Son? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. 
And so Jesus steps immediately right into the ferocity and ever-present hunger of the human condition. And this is right where Satan sees his chance. He takes his best shot at Christ while he is weakened in extreme hunger. Like one scholar said that Satan approaches Jesus like an anxious thought, exploiting the human survival instinct within him. And it's so relatable, right? For how often are the enemy's attacks on us accentuated when we're low, when an insatiable hunger has been dragged out and an unanswerable despair sets in? Jesus was led up into the wilderness. Though he was led up, it becomes something of a, of a valley of a shadow of death when the tempter comes upon him and challenges in him, challenges him. And so in this moment, Jesus is tempted in a seemingly weak space, not in his fullness, but in hunger, in a season of dissatisfaction. And so often is it the case for us. But hear Christ's response. But he answered, in verse 4, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Or, as the King James Version says, man shall not live by every bread alone, but on every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The KJV is my preference here for that word proceedeth. It captures an implied motion that is stated here, a motion from one place to another, a life proceeding from the mouth of God, the basis of living coming from God, not bread alone. And as you see, Jesus' response is very much dependent on God, his Father. He does not leverage his power to relieve his suffering. Rather, he responds with an obedience that corresponds to his dependence on the Father. He knows that his life proceeds from God and that the actual motions of his living come from his heavenly Father, not the circumstances around him and what will be added in excess or subtracted from them. In other words, it's not his hunger problem to solve just yet, for the Spirit has led him here where his dependence has been exposed. And he is no more or less dependent on his hunger now. He is no more dependent on God than he was in the water as he is now in the wilderness. The, de- the, the, the exposure of the, the dependence is clear, but it has not changed the reality that life proceeds from God's mouth. Now, what is Jesus saying when he says, it is written? Well, he's, he's quoting the book of Deuteronomy from chapter 8. This is Moses speaking to Israel, reminding them of a time when they were in the wilderness, hungry, crying out to God for food, and God gave them manna, that bread that they didn't know where it was coming from, but it was falling on the ground for them to feed them. And this is the context of what Moses says Remember the whole way that the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart and whether you would keep his commandments or not. Okay, that's looking for obedience. God's looking for obedience. And then hear this from Moses. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
See, God's looking for an obedience that corresponds to the dependence that his people have on him. And Jesus hearkens back to this time when the people of Israel were in just as much dependence on God, their Father, to supply and sustain them. You see, we are always dependent on God. Sometimes our unfulfilled desires, though, our hungers, only expose it more, only expose more the dependence on God, maybe more than we feel comfortable with. And yet, so it is the reality And in those moments, God is calling us to an obedience that corresponds to our dependence in him. Just as we rely on him, so he is looking for faithful obedience to him. In other words, an unmet hunger can be a catalyst for a a special and unique encounter with God. How many of us would say that going through a, a season of pain or grief or hunger that God was revealed and near to us in a fresh way? That's a that's a life lived in obedience that corresponds to the dependence on him. That's just because the living issues out of his mouth. Life comes from God, not bread alone. But Jesus' response to Satan is actually a little bit more provocative, I think, than first appears. Because while he bears witness to the scripture and to Deuteronomy and to what Moses and the people went through, the implications are inverted for his own moment. For he himself, Jesus, has not yet been given bread by God. You see, when Satan says, you might die here, aren't you going to do something about it? Christ responds with, what word do we live by? What word do we live by? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. If his word is to provide bread, then so his word will be to satisfy. But if his word is to not provide the bread, then I will be satisfied in him. You see, the connection that Israel has to man does not live by bread alone, but every word from the mouth of God, that every word is the bread. It is the manna that they're receiving day after day. Yes, we don't live by bread alone because we live by the bread from God. He provides the bread. Well, nothing is, nothing's wrong with this. That's what they were taught. And this is what we are taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer. But this Son of God has not been given bread. And yet he uses the same principle to say, my life proceeds from God without the payoff, without the evidence. I'm casting myself in utter dependence on my heavenly father because my life proceeds from him. And in a world of so many hungers, this is a hard teaching because our hungers, our desires, they expose our dependence on God. But rather, often, instead of uh, leading us to a closeness with God, our dependence on God and nearness to Him, it feels like it actually provokes doubt within us. Doubt that we, that we somehow should distance ourselves from God, that He hasn't provided the bread we thought we were going to get. And this becomes an impetus to push away from God, rather lean into our dependence on Him. But as we said, hunger is everywhere, actual food hunger, hungers beyond the the bread itself, hungers for a calling, hungers for a life that that matters, a job that matters, a spouse, a child, a hunger for a, a healing that has not come for years. And the truth is, we all come to God with our hungers and and hoping that He will satisfy them. And He can. He can bring forth loaves from the rock. But the thing he cannot do, the thing he cannot do is make those loaves satisfy us like 
He himself can satisfy us, for life proceeds from him. And the desires we bring to God can only be fed. They can never be fully met by all the exterior means by which we come to God and ask for them. Again, these are good desires. These are godly hungers. God did not give us our bodies to scorn us for our hunger, to have to eat three or four or... Six, let's not count how many times we ate this last week. Let's just leave it at that. But to have to eat again and again, this dependence, this state of dependence ought to instill in us a, a love of God, gratitude for him, and a fervency for him from whom the life flows. Let me put this another way. The only satisfaction we will find is, is, is from God himself. It is from our, our, our nearness to him, our abiding in him. I understand that's abstract, but that is where fulfillment and, and the meeting of every hunger is met regardless of whether the actual bread has been given. There is a fulfillment that can come from God. God alone satisfies life, and we know this by experience. We know this because a life sustained by food only is a very poor life. And so it is that Christ's desires have been pushed to the limit. The scriptures are not being dramatic when they tell us we have a Lord who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, are they? For he has borne them himself as extremely as anyone else. But it was not only his life's desires that were under temptation, but the direction of his life. Let me turn to that for a moment. I'm sorry for the sniffling. Please forgive me. Christ's humiliation... This is the first point of Christ's direction of his life. Christ's direction, not only his desires were this hunger that was unfed, he had a direction that was challenged by Satan himself. And it's during Advent that we recognize the direction of Christ's life, that it first went down to his humiliation, his incarnation, his dwelling in a world of sin and pain, before it went back up. We've already emphasized what precedes this temptation, the story of Christ's baptism, where he, though being sinless, identified with sinners and was baptized. And when he comes up from the water, what is he? He hears the audible voice of his father. This is my beloved son, and the, the spirit comes on him. This is a unique place in the scriptures where we see the triune God together and uh, in this mystery that we find hard to understand, it's pictured in this way for us. And we see Christ in this unity of the Trinity. And he's immediately led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And so Satan's temptation craftily begins not with the stones and the loaves, but with a more cutting question. If you are the Son of God, Satan asks, what type of relationship is this anyway? Where a beloved son is now in the wilderness, tortured by hunger. Don't you have the right to use your own powers to meet your basic needs? And Satan is highlighting, of course, a false dichotomy that we are so prone to as humans, but it can be boiled down to this. Does God lead his beloved children to starve? And this forces the question of exactly what we might have expected the trajectory of Christ's ministry to be. What was the direction? What's the direction of my own life to be in Christ? 
So often, my own mindset is, well, I'm, I'm always moving from, from wilderness to water, right? From the wandering and the seeking and the ouch and the hunger to the place where I'm hearing that audible voice of God and feeling the presence of the Trinity, but it's in the reverse for Christ in the direction of his ministry. He goes lower and lower, not higher, right away. And the Spirit may very well lead to a place where the hunger doesn't seem like it can be satisfied. And often the thought is, I must have taken a wrong turn. God could not have led me up into the wilderness here. And I must, must dial back. I must have made a misstep along the way. That's not Christ's reaction here. The path of Christ was to experience an extreme level of insatiable need to prove again that life proceeds from God and to fall on dependence before his Father. And so often we look at our own lives and we see something that we perceive to be unwanted, a pile of stones that we would like to see turned into loaves, something more productive. And we can pray, God, I'm looking at a pile of stones. Please change this. Please give me what I want. Please change what this is. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. Again, it's only demonstrating a dependence on God and an admission of the reality that he's the only one to change the stones in the first place. But watch for a, a subtle and, and sinister thing that can happen where, where suddenly we're standing in the place of the tempter and, and, and our prayer is now laced with a notion that, that if God doesn't respond to this prayer, if he doesn't respond to this hunger, then, then we're suddenly voicing the same question as the tempter, if you you are God, if you are good, if, if you are Jesus, then you'll do this, certainly. And how often have we been led astray by that sort of thinking that a good God would answer this hunger or fix the direction, but if bread is all there is, we're going to be hungry for a long time. We're wired for more than that, a dependence on God that goes beyond the circumstances for our lives proceed from him. And exposing this, exposing our dependence on God, can have a twisted challenge to God himself, although it doesn't, certainly does not always and does not need to. It can be a danger. And so in this point of his life, the direction of Christ's life is down. It's going lower and lower. But we must take heart because we, are, we who have had faith in Christ are united to him. And we're assured that the direction of our lives, whether off or in the wilderness or what, that will not always be the case. There will be a rising up as it was for Christ. There's two connection points quickly in this passage that Matthew wants to make for his audience. He first wants to connect Christ to Moses and, and demonstrate this because Moses went up onto a Mount, Mount Sinai and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights upon receiving the Ten Commandments from God. But Christ takes on a stronger temptation than him as he faces the tempter himself. So Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, wants to connect Christ to Moses. He also wants to connect Christ to someone well-known in the Jewish context, but maybe less than the American one, and that is Elijah, the famous prophet of Israel, Elijah, who also went into the wilderness, was given a meal by God, and then walked for 40 days and 40 nights to a holy mountain where he heard that still small whisper of God's voice. Do you recall that story? God wasn't in the fire. He was in the 
quiet whisper. That's Elijah's experience. And what is Matthew doing in connecting these two together? Well, he's certainly connecting with his own Jewish audience to show that Christ is the Messiah. But Matthew draws it all together with Moses and Elijah in Matthew 17, where Moses and Elijah are presented with Christ at the transfiguration, when a few of the apostles see Christ in his glorified state as greater than Moses and Elijah. The one who went lower in the direction of his life, Moses and Elijah, demonstrating great lows in their life. Christ went lower still and was raised higher and beyond, for God glorified him, for he was his son. And Christ, in doing this, was not seeking a personal gain, but living in dependence before God. So we too, as we likewise follow with Christ, ought not to despair in the direction of our lives, even when faced with temptation of it, but ought to trust in Christ that as it was with him, so it will be with us. Last point, our dependence. We've looked at our desires and our direction, two things that are on under intense scrutiny as we start this new year, often by way of resolutions, and I, I certainly think that is a wonderful way that we can even glorify God, and as Gray was saying, uh, seek a, a reset or to seek Him uh, more. But these desires to growth, of course, need to be in a secure place of dependence on God. But wherever you find yourself this morning, must recognize the reality set upon us, that we are in an utter state of dependence on God. This was the case when he breathed life into the nostrils of Adam, and it is no less the case today. Our lives proceed from God. And I want to argue uh, in this closing point that we will never be more alive than when we recognize our dependence on God. Why? This is our last point, dependence. Uh, and dependence is key to, to real living. We say life proceeds from God, and so increasing our dependence on that would be the pathway to that. Well, first of all, dependence is, dependence is the reality we are already in before God. But, but positively speaking, our dependence on God yields two things, certainly more than that, but it, but it yields at least two things. It yields a fullness, a fullness to living, and it yields a freedom, even as we are dependent on Him. Now, that's not everything to living, but it's no small part. I think our country's founders knew this when they wrote the Declaration of Independence. Ironically, I'm talking about dependence, so kind of ignore the title of the document, but... Uh, life, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, yes? Fullness and freedom. If you're here this morning, you have life, you're here. So what's next? Liberty and the pursuit of happiness, or fullness, freedom, and fullness. So let's look at these two under, the, under dependence. First, fullness, a dependence on God that yields fullness. God alone satisfies our life with his fullness, to try to look elsewhere for, hit, for fullness besides God is like snitching candy or a cookie before dinner to relieve an appetite. It only makes it worse. We don't find our desires uh, satiated by seeking further independence from God. Rather, it is under a dependence on Him alone that our lives fill with fullness. And 
we get an example of this from the very story that Jesus quotes regarding the manna. When God gave, fed his people with bread from heaven, with manna, he gave strict instructions. Do not collect for the next day. Only on the sixth day you could collect for the Sabbath. Otherwise, it's for one day and one day only. Don't collect for tomorrow. Just get what you need today. Again, an obedience that corresponds to a dependence, right? But how did the people act? Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part till morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Well, there now, we have an example of actual dependence, but then an attempt to walk outside of that dependence and fill an extra container just in case the Lord does not do what he promised and sends bread the next day. And was more fullness achieved? Was more filling of the hunger achieved? No, it was wasted energy. It was a mess to clean up. And so often this is the case in seeking a fullness for living outside of a dependence of God. It simply spoils now, what is the method of practicing this? Well, um, it is hard to relinquish our jars of extra before God and fall on reliance on Him, but we must note what we've already said, that our desires can be met, can never be fully met, but only endlessly fed, and bring them to the Lord as second-order desires. Note that Christ does not eliminate bread entirely. He eliminated it as the only source of life. So our dependence on God must be the first order item, allowing the second order things to fall into place. And that's how dependence yields fullness before God. It's receiving him and him first and his will and allowing the second order things to be filled in as he will. And, and very often he will, but it's a matter of priority. It's like packing the car. You know, you don't put uh, the little books and the shoes and the things in first, right? You're going to be, you're, you're, where's all the space go? You got to anchor the clothes. The luggage goes in first and you fill in sister's sticker book and the teddy bear after that. And now you're going to have a nicely packed trunk. This is similar to our dependence before God. We seek him first and let the other second order things fall in, into place. Secondly, dependence can yield freedom, yield of freedom. Now, this often sounds counterintuitive, and it is the reason that so many reject Christianity. They say, this is the God of restriction, the God of law. I don't want to be a part of him. That's not a freedom. That's not a life. That's not something I want. Well, yes, certainly there are restrictions, and that is part and parcel with holy living, or any living for that matter, but there is no restriction-free form of living that is tenable. Again, these rules of Christianity are second order to God. The first, the item of first importance before God is the gospel, that God voluntarily and freely lowered himself, that the one who was dependent on no one became the utterly dependent baby in the cradle, that we, lost sinners who are always trying to find our own freedoms before him and prone to wander, might come to depend on him. The, the one on which everything depends became so vulnerable that we, always seeking to be independent, might fall on him and find our life in him. That's the message of Christianity. 
It is Christ offering himself freely for us to depend, and he alone offers this. And it is, it is often temptation in this world to, to chase an insatiable desire for more freedom, thinking that freedom is, is the highest good and kind of the birthright that we have. But this desire for freedom turns out to be another insatiable hunger that can never be met. Rather, there will be the most freedom in coming under the banner of, of, of Christ falling on him in dependence and having everything in its place to say, I found my freedom to live. I don't need the circumstances around me to be dictated in a certain way for my life is proceeding from him. And so this is Christ's response to Satan. He's not eliminating bread completely, but he is falling on ultimately dependence on God. This message is titled... uh, Westward leading, still proceeding, trying to stay in the vein of Christmas during Christmas tide. Obviously, a line taken from We Three Kings. It's odd, but, uh, but the line actually captures this text in verse 1 at least. Jesus was led into the wilderness. There's a, your westward leading. And in verse 4, we get a, a level of resolution here, uh, at least in the KJV, a proceeding, a proceeding from the mouth of God. The satisfied life is not conducted on the basis of food alone. Rather, it proceeds from God's mouth. And even when I'm hungry and my mouth is empty, I know that his mouth is full and he will sustain my life. The first report of hunger in the scriptures goes back to Genesis chapter 3, possible hunger. When Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden tree, though they're surrounded in a garden by permissible food, Adam, driven by his desire, wanting the direction of his life to go up, and in his hunger to be like God, partook of the fruit of the garden. And you might say that Adam gained some freedom as he was driven from the Garden of Eden, and you might say he gained fulfillment from his work, but we would only be saying that because we haven't known anything else. We haven't ever known a day when we weren't endlessly trying to feed our desires, and we haven't known a day when our desires have been fully met. Because freedom and fulfillment are found in dependence on God, not in independence. So often we, like Adam, want to go our own way. But praise God for the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who, hear this quote from a scholar, with with every tree of the garden for food, Adam fell. But with desert stones mocking his hunger, the second Adam conquered. Christ has triumphed that we might triumph in him. And this Christ embodies us before God. Let me pray for us.